Well, I'm fired up again, Paul. I'm fired up. I read an article today and I said, I'm so glad we're recording because I have got to talk about this news story that I heard about last night. Yeah, I had a chance to read that story as well. And I'm fired up with you there, Clark. It is uh, it, it is really interesting to, to read articles that capture what's going on at our moment in time with us being in the, the COVID lockdowns. Um, so yeah, this article really um, really makes you think about our current state of affairs. Why don't you uh, Why don't you describe what's 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 the issue here that's got you all fired up? Then let, let's talk about this. Here's the headline: Ontario couple find eight hundred and eighty dollars for Pokemon Go outing amid stay at home order. And this comes from the CBC News. Matthew Steves and his wife haven't had a moment alone in months. But when they stole away for a drive on Wednesday and stopped to play Pokemon Go, their brief get getaway ended with a fine of $880. Basically, what happened was the couple they live, who live in the town of Kingsville, Ontario, south of Windsor, they pulled into an empty chart church parking lot to capture some digital monsters. This is the article. But an Ontario provincial police cruiser drove up behind them and the officer asked what they were doing. Steve's said. The officer then told them their trip wasn't essential and handed the pair a fine for violating lockdown restrictions. He's quoted here. He says, I was in shock and my mind was blown. I was very angry. I couldn't believe I was being given a $750 ticket for sitting in my van, Steve said. I don't understand how being inside your vehicle is contributing to the spread of COVID-19 and that they get to the $880 because that's what it will cost, $750 plus taxes for this fine. Um, yeah, I mean, I, when I read this, I was absolutely shocked and I was thinking this is not in the spirit of what this is. Yes, we're supposed to stay at home, essential trips only, but come on, you get out and you go into a parking lot with your family and play a video game in your car and a police officer decides to ask what you're doing and summarily issues a fine because they felt you weren't taking a essential trip. Absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, it's a sad state of affairs that we've come to this point. I think throughout the whole COVID pandemic and and as we've seen with the various lockdowns, it's interesting to see, you know, the whole human behavior aspect of it where sometimes it can it can bring out the worst in people in terms of, you know, tattletales and um, you know, people spying on each other and and ratting people out, but that's a whole different issue in itself. What we're talking about here is is Having this stay-at-home order applied so literally to the point where, as you said, it seems absolutely ridiculous that people that were in their vehicle, absolutely no danger to anybody else, um, not putting themselves in a position to be spreading the virus, um, are imposed with with a ticket and quite an expensive ticket, eight hundred eighty dollars. That's that's a lot of money. So, you know, this isn't yes. this isn't a, a chump change ticket. Um, and they were in this car with the, t- the the themselves and their two teenage kids who all live in the same house together. Yeah, so this wasn't the couple with two buddies in the back, two, another couple who don't live with them. This is the household getting into a car and going out in t- for a car drive. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very important point to make there. Um, as I was reading this 
obviously I, I can we can all sort of sympathize with this family that was out in this van because I think it was mentioned that they were outside for a mental health break. Um, yeah, you, you you still gotta live, and although these restrictions can be, um, you know, very strict in their nature, and obviously we understand that the the grand importance of them, but at the same time, it, it takes away the fact that the mental health component is being overlooked. And I've said this for a very long time now, the fact that, you know, as the government keeps imposing these very restrictive guidelines and stay-at-home orders, it ignores the fact that mental health aspect, which I think is so, so critical. Mental health is important even on the best of days, but I can only imagine, you know, the the toll that it's taking on, on people uh, throughout this pandemic, especially during well, the winter time as well, when you know, when you you have to get in your car to to have a change of scenery, so the the having a mental health break is just as important yeah. as anything else. And this is different than you know what I I need a mental health break, so I'm going to go visit my mom. I don't care anymore. I'm going. Mm. That is different. Yes, that is that is different. This was the, the actual household getting in a car together just to break the monotony and get, as you said, a mental health break and go do something fun in an abstract place that isn't their basement or their living room mm-hmm. or the place they've been spending the last several weeks sitting in. Yep. It, absolutely. And so you're not talking about somebody saying, well, I've followed the rules for two weeks and I'm tired of it, so I want to break them a little bit and then I'll go back to the normal thing. I, I, I think... This is something where a police officer has decided to be, well, jerks. Yeah. This, this comes after what, when this first came out, the OPP, the Ontario Provincial Police, made confirmation that they weren't going to be just stopping people, pulling people over. The OPP issued a statement three days after the emergency was declared that saying officers would not be arbitrarily stopping people or vehicles to check for compliance, although they can ask people to identify themselves if they have reasonable grounds to believe someone is violating the act. But I think the first part of that is they're not going to just arbitrarily stop people to check for compliance. And that, to me, is what happened in this case. They've communicated that to the the public and that police wouldn't be just arbitrarily checking people. It's not supposed to be a police state. Um, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but the... The stay-at-home order is is meant to prevent people from, you know, going to visit other households, that type of thing. Um, hence the the strict nature of it. But as you said, the the fact that people in a vehicle keeping to themselves are, are ticketed, you know, it, it there really has been a, a real lack of consistency in the enforcement of this. I think I the article mentioned the family had stated that they're just in the wrong place at the wrong time because yeah. how is that any different from getting your car, grabbing a coffee and driving down to the lake and kind of watching the sunset. And that's something that I do. Right. My wife and yes. I, we do that all the time. We grab a coffee and go down yes. to the, the Whitby waterfront and, and watch the sunset and watch the birds. It's something you got to do just for mental health, just to get out of the house, especially when you're working from home, you, you don't have that break in scenery it is so important for mental health. Um, I, well, here's the other thing that, that grinds my gears here is that the officer told this guy 
told uh, Steve's, his last name's Steve's, the officer said their plan wasn't essential and mm. told them if the family was involved in an accident, they could expose others to the risk of COVID-19, noting that if they needed to get outside, they could simply go for a walk. Mm. Okay, so they, they're concerned that if these guys, you know, run into a ditch or their car stalls on the side of the road and then they need support from a tow truck or somebody to help boost their car, the battery died, they're saying that this is exposing people to COVID-19. That is such a weak argument. That is so weak. Because how is that any... Well, is it? Is it, it is. exposing no, people it, it, to COVID-19? It, no, it isn't. You're not exposing it's, anybody well, else. <laughs> then explain to me why Walmarts are still open, why Costco's are still open. Essential. It's essential. Yeah, even then... You could make an argument. Is is a Costco really an essential? Yeah, well, we can go down. Yeah, again, that's a whole rabbit hole in itself. But you know, I I don't think that the risk to the public, as long as you're wearing a mask, is is no greater than someone walking into a Walmart to buy clothing or to buy a package of batteries or something like that. Yeah, then you follow the social distancing rules. So if I'm I'm, I'm, I've got several masks in the glove compartment Mm -hmm. of my car, so that no matter what happens all everyone in the car could put a mask on if we needed them to yeah. we got the hand sanitizer there in the in the console yep same here and so to me having that is is stupid i just think that's stupid it, it is yeah and as you said it, did she just sit there she said she saw they were sitting in the parking lot it says the OPP officer uh, had pulled into the parking lot to fill out some paperwork, then stopped to ask why they were there. That bothers me too. Yeah, I, that's the police state stuff. It is. Yeah, another great point in that it is turning us into a police state. That should never have been the the concept or or the motivation behind these stay at home orders, um, where it's bordering on taking away people's rights, people's civil liberties. Yeah, I should have the right uh, to get in my car and drive down to the lake or wherever I want to go. As long as I'm yeah. not putting anybody else in danger, then I don't... Not picking up your mom or your grandma yeah. or or a person with, um, you know, second... Oh, what do they call it? A uh, person with a compromised immune system yeah. or uh, somebody at risk, diabetic. What do they call that? What do we call that? Uh, Underlying symptoms. Yes. You're simply going and picking somebody, or you're 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 going out for this leisurely drive or whatever. I absolutely like I I this is really I'm I'm fired up about <laughs> this. I think I don't think a lot of people understand that most of the things they're doing innocently mm-hmm. are actually potent are something that could potentially land them in the same situation that these folks ended up in. Yeah, in this case, could have been just a. A police officer that was just in a bad mood that day. Something pissed him off, and he just wanted to write a ticket. Who knows? Um, and and thank goodness, most the vast majority of police have not taken this action. I, I think if if you truly enforce this stay at home to the true letter of the law, I think everybody would be getting tickets. Um, and I mentioned before about the the mental health um, component of this. I think you would see, you know, a real epidemic of, of mental health crises in, in Canada and elsewhere around the world if if nations truly impose these lockdowns um, with that much vigor. It's a real problem. It, it feels like there's just, I've said this since early on, and it's easy to be an armchair critic on this, but 
the creativity that's gone into these lockdowns and restrictions is absolutely zero. Yeah. It's, it's just, it just shut it down. And that is not good enough. The, 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 there needs to be better. And I know things emerge and things change, but just to shut it down or you shut it down for 30 days, absolutely shut it down for 30 days and, and, and not get to where it needed to be shut down for un, an unlimited amount of time. That's the other thing. It's gone into this, um, well, now we just keep shut, keep it shut down until sometime at which we decide it's going to be okay. And that could be three months. Well, and for you especially, because, because you live in the city limits of Toronto, you're in what they call the hot zone. Yeah, so I'm always going to be... We're never coming out of this lockdown. <laughs> yeah, well, you've been... It should be important to note that you've essentially been in lockdown since the end of November. So you you've have another month on me, because um, I live yeah. uh, in Durham region, which is about half hour away from you, not even. But yeah. because of the area that I live in, we're in a different color-coded scheme, and, and that in itself is a whole different topic, but... You know, our lockdown didn't come until the end of December. I think it was Boxing Day, December 26th. Yeah. So, yeah, I can only imagine that the frustration uh, people within the city um, having to deal with these lockdowns and then the the issues that small business owners are having to deal with. Um, you know, I, I really worry for, for the economy, the number of small businesses that are going to have to shutter uh, permanently. Um you know, you hope that they hang on, but it doesn't look good. And although there is talk of, of gradual reopening, who knows what, what that's going to look like. Ooh. Well, and look at this. Uh, I want to finish up with this because I don't want to drag people down into this pit of despair. But at the end of the article, he points out that in order to process this ticket, so if he wants to fight it or do what he needs to do with it, he has to drive a roughly 40-kilometer trip to the Windsor Courthouse, which, by the way, to do so is permitted under the Stay-at-Home Act. Generations of fathers. Some fathers did a lot of stuff, and some didn't when we were growing up, Paul. And I know you wanted to talk about this topic, about what fathers did when participating in, you know, the raising of their children, things like changing diapers, why don't I let you kick this off since this was something you wanted to, to talk about today? Yeah, I've often thought this is kind of an interesting topic to, to talk about in that how much has fatherhood changed over the years? Um, and when I say years, I mean more so over the generations. I got to thinking about this because my mom had made a comment to me about how I am very involved and raising my son in terms of um, my wife and I split everything 50-50 down the middle in terms of how we raise our, our son. Um, you know, the tasks that I do around the house, helping out with, with housework and, and cooking, um, you know, raising our son, helping him with schoolwork, that type of thing. Um, you know, and, and my brother is very much the same way with his kids. He is very interactive and involved. Um you know, with kids being in, in extracurricular sports. Um, you know, there, there's so much involved in obviously raising children, as, as our listeners know. Um, and the reason why this point was raised is because my mom had said that, you know, 50, 40, 50 years ago, 
this would have been unheard of. Dads did squat. Dads didn't do that kind of thing. And I'm not saying it to be disrespectful to our parents' generation, to our, our, our dad's generation, which would have been, you know, people born in the 1930s, 1940s. But yeah. it's interesting to, when you when you take a look back at at the years. I wonder, you know, it, would my dad have done what I do in terms of the amount of housework or the amount of cooking? Um, you know, changing diapers, and and I think you know the whole changing diapers thing is is kind of a key because I, I've talked to people, and again, it's sometimes it, it's cultural as well, but primarily a generational thing where. Where probably I would say that we, as in, you know, here we are in our in our forties, um, in and around our generation was probably the first generation that that truly got our hands dirty in terms of, you know, really rolling up the sleeves and, and changing the diapers and being an equal partner in in raising kids. Because when I mm-hmm. look back at my childhood, my dad sort of played a different role in the household. He obviously was the traditional sense of being the provider where he, he worked long hours. And when he came home from work, the dinner, the dinner was put on the table for him and he didn't really do any housework, (laughs) you know, like once he came home from work that, then that was it. Um, and on weekends he would do projects around the house, that type of thing. So he was an active man. I'm not, again, no, no disrespect to, to the role that he played in the household. What I'm saying is that it's just, it's very different. And the households today are, are so different from what they were, you know, 30, 40 years ago, and in even way more different than what they were in our grandparents' generations. Um, yeah. You know, households back in the 1940s and 1950s, and you go back even further. I, I guess we, we kind of take a look back at, um, you know, as I said, the traditional roles that, that, men would play within the household and that it was expected typically the woman would be working from would would be a stay-at-home mother and the laundry would be done and the dinner would be waiting on the table for when the father came home i just thought it would it's an interesting um you know reflection to take a look back as to how things have changed and i'm just wondering what are your experiences what what do you remember as a kid well it's an so i definitely saw a father who did nothing around the house didn't cook didn't clean those were the things that i know my mother did all of that stuff i do know for a fact that he did change my diapers okay if you look at the things around the house he definitely was that typical yeah he he went to work all day came home Dinner was on the table, just like you were describing. Very traditional sounding, at least in North America. Very traditional way. Makes me think of Leave it to Beaver. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the show Leave it to Beaver. Um, June Cleaver had the house cleaned. and Ward came home with his suit and, and tie on. And, and dinner was ready. And it was just this perfect little household. And um, yeah, so when I was growing up, and thought when I'm a father and when I became a father, I actually did. That was a cue for me. That's how you are. That's how fathers are. And that's how I want it to be. I want it to be like this. Now my wife worked and I worked. So that to me 
ruled that out because my mother didn't work when we were growing up. So I always assumed that if two people were working, that kind of changed the rules a little bit. And so when we were, when, when my wife and I decided to have children, because we were both working, it sort of nullified a little bit of that, what I grew up with and what my father's role was in the house. But without a doubt, there are times that I, like when we went to Japan, I, I worked and my wife didn't. So yeah, I started getting some of those feelings were creeping in like, well, it's not my responsibility to make dinner. I'm working. Um, It's not my responsibility to do the laundry because I'm working. And so I think a lot of that stuff came from that. And it's passed down from generation to generation. But I don't begrudge participating. And I know I do not do anywhere near as much housework as my wife does, or I don't, I don't do the laundry. That's her department in by choice, by the way. (laughs) Um, I mean, I'm sure she wouldn't mind if I threw in a few loads of laundry and did some folding now and then, but she generally does like to be in charge of the laundry because she has certain ways of folding and doing things. But in terms of where I thought we were going to go with this, which was more about the hands-on aspects of child rearing, like changing diapers and, and doing the things that are involved with the kids. Well, that part I believe is extremely important when it comes to how you bond with your kids. They, in fact, someone told me this, that changing a kid's diaper is actually a bonding experience for you and the child as weird as that may sound, you know, remember when you change a diaper and they're laying on their back, they're sort of looking up at you and, and it's a kind of a nice little moment of, of intimacy in a sense that you get this opportunity to have, you know, you're doing something Mm -hmm. for the kid. You're taking them away from likely an uncomfortable feeling they're having with wet diaper or whatever, uh, and then making them dry and comfortable. And I think that's a bonding experience that you would miss out on if you we weren't doing those those sorts of things. Yeah, the whole changing of diapers, it, it is kind of a, a bonding experience. And it's something that, you know, even when my wife was on maternity leave, um, you know, when my son was first born, you know, the fact that you know, she obviously would not be working for a full year, but nonetheless, you know, when you come home, or even after a, a busy day at work, you, you still jump in there and change diapers because, you know, my my view on it was the sense that, okay, my wife has been changing diapers all day. She needs a break, too. It's not like she's yes. sitting on her house doing nothing. It's hard work looking after a baby, uh, especially a newborn. Well, so. that's a good point, too, because a lot of people assume that this, you know, Canadians get a year off work. Um, if they have a child, like you can take a one year maternity or one year parental leave. And there's a lot of assumptions that that's some kind of a vacation mm-hmm. or sabbatical. I'll take the working all, all year, yeah. you know, yeah. cause you're right all day you're at home with the kids yep. and, or kid or whatever. And you're exhausted, especially in those early years it's there are many days where my wife probably would have traded in for for, for me and said I'll I'll work today you you handle stuff here at the house mm-hmm. you know it's interesting to take a look at how things well we're talking about generational changes but even within our professional working careers there's been a lot of changes as well um 
you know, you and I have been in the workforce probably about 25 years now. Um, but I would say that even in the last 20 years, there's still a lot of stigmas that have been lifted with respect to fathers being able to take parental leave. You know, mm. why should it be automatic that it's only the woman that takes parental leave? You know, at a certain point, it would for a man to do that, it would have been a very career-limiting move. Yes. These days, not so much. Um, it's it's more acceptable. Yeah, thankfully, that, that's changed. Yeah, it's more acceptable yeah. that that men can maybe split the parental leave. You know, six months for each parent. Um, you know, I think dads are there. There's certainly um, again less stigmas attached to dads being participating in like PTA meetings or you know taking daughters to to brownies or to you know whatever it is that that they're involved in i think fathers just in general um are able to do more and are more free to do it knowing that again a lot of those macho stigmas have been removed and i said i've seen a difference even in 20 years um so it's amazing how yeah kid, like fathers with I'm sort of switching back to the father thing for a sec, but the well, let me let me say one thing about what you're saying, which was uh, I worked having grown up with that very traditional family situation when I was initially working, and I would hear about people potentially taking parental leave, mm. like men taking it. I, I I have to admit, I was one of those people who was kind of sneering at that a little bit, like really, like come on, like that's kind of weird. But I t- I've totally changed my my feeling on that now. Um, but I did want to share in Japan, things are very traditional there to like, it's very, it's about 20, 30 years behind in a lot of ways, especially in this, that the tradi- it's changing, it's getting better, but the traditional Japanese household is one where when women get pregnant, they stop working. And it, to the point that at work, this is not always well received when a woman wants to go back to work. And this, this can get a lot of criticism. In fact, they, they blame, they'll say that because you're coming back to work, you're putting a, a strain on the daycare system because now your kids need to be in, in daycare. Um, and so there's been much, there's, there's a lot of criticism and to the point even where some men, usually older men have called out, younger men in like social situations like at the at the bus or train station or in a store and and say what's wrong with you like what are you doing carrying your baby in one of those you know baby bjorns like that's your wife's job like that's still very much the way it is there yeah it's an interest it's getting a lot better but that there is a still a element of that yeah wow that's amazing to hear because you know, we look at it from a Canadian lens where we like to think that we're pretty progressive in that manner. Um, but yeah, that's so strange to hear that certain countries, um, and it shouldn't really be strange because, yeah, they said there's a lot of differences from a cultural standpoint. Uh, but yeah, very interesting indeed that obviously a very westernized nation such as Japan um, still has some very, very traditional views on what the family component is, kind of the, uh, yeah, like when you take a look back at, um, you know, I, I guess looking at the the historical um, 
you know, roles of the man. You know, the man should be the disciplinarian and children should be seen and not heard, that type of, of concept. <laughs> Wait till your father gets home. Wait till home. your father gets home. Yeah, then, then you'll be sorry. Um, yeah, that's such a thing of the past now. And, and it's, it's, it's weird to hear that places like Japan, that's still very, very prevalent. Well, I'll just finish up with this. My my friend who's who's been on the show a couple of times, Justin. He's he's a working parent, but he does take a primary role in the upbringing of his kids. And he says he's even felt because his wife has a, a pretty full time job and difficult to, for her to have the flexibility that he's been able to 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 be given. But he does feel like the tension sometimes around him because he's very involved in the kid's school. Like he's a room parent, I think. So he's part of the liaising between the teachers and, and the kids. And he's not, he has a full-time job, but he does get involved in some of the duties of the classroom in, in some, some way, but he's even had the, because most of the people he interacts with the other parents, they're all, women, right? Like it's all wives who or mothers who are at the school. And sometimes he does get the odd, oh, like look when he's he's there. Now it's an expat school. So there's a lot of foreign families there, but he still does feel it now and then. Yeah. That feeling of, well, what are you doing? Here? Yeah. Well, I can believe that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's still going to take some time and, and it's going to be interesting to see where this continues to lead. If we have this conversation, you know, 10 years from now or 20 years from now, I'm sure it'll be even completely, you know, even that much more different in terms of the of the roles and, and where men stand within the community and, and you know, overall, um, you know, the, the ideas or the stigmas that are surrounding men in, in the family and how they interact. Bucket lists, bucket lists. Also, an idea you came up with to talk about bucket lists. Do you have a bucket list? Is there a purpose to bucket lists? Uh, do you write one out, or is it just a bucket list in your head? And if and a bucket list is just things that you dream of one day doing before you die, right? That's that's essentially what a bucket list is. And you hear this expression yeah. a lot least in North American culture, well, there's one less thing for my bucket list, or I'm going to add this to my bucket list, you know, climb Mount Everest, you know, whatever it is, some, usually it's some lofty thing, but we can talk about that a little bit. And why, why did you want to talk about this today? Yeah, I always thought bucket lists are kind of an interesting concept. And obviously, every person's bucket list is going to be completely different from the other. Um, I would be very shocked to find individuals with exactly the same bucket list. Did you bring some bucket list ideas today? Or things that are on your bucket well, list? I, I have some items that are sort of quote unquote on my bucket list. But I will say this that I don't I don't actually have a bucket list written down. And I always thought this was kind of an interesting topic because to some people it, as you had mentioned in the intro is that yes, it's a it's a it's a word that gets thrown around a lot uh you know something for my bucket at least in our culture it is yeah in our culture yeah but how many people take that literally to have a formal checklist in front of them and say i'm physically writing something out on, on my bucket list and i've often wondered is that a good thing or a bad thing so in other words does it give you 
a sense of purpose, like sort of like a to-do list of things that you want to achieve throughout your lifetime, mm-hmm. things that you like place you want to go or, or, or to see or goals you want to achieve. Yeah. Or is it something that is going to set you up for disappointment? So in other words, are you going to be on your deathbed and thinking back to this this bucket list that you've created and find that only you know a quarter of the things are checked off again not to sort of keep sort of sounding morbid but as we get older it's one of those things you have to think about and that you don't have you don't have unlimited time to to accomplish these things and and depending on what's on your bucket list you need to be able to do these while you're still healthy and able as well there's no sense creating a bucket list when you're 80 years old and half the things on the list you may not be able to do. Um, so I think if if one reaches a point in their life where if you're going to say, okay, I'm going to actually write out my bucket list, us being in our 40s, this is kind of the time to do it because, mm-hmm. you know, we have the still we're healthy and, and are able to do some of these adventures or travels or whatever it is that's on this list. You know, we're at a point in our lives where you know, we're working, we're, we're making a good income, we can perhaps do these things financially that may not have been possible perhaps in our 20s. Well, I was going to so, say that too. What size of, is yeah. a bucket list a first world concept? That's a good question. I, Sounds I like think a privileged so. list in a way, but does a third world, do third world people have bucket lists, I wonder? Like, one day well, I'm going to leave this village. Maybe they do. Maybe it said a bucket list is a very individual thing, and and for us to, the 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 traditional sense of you know a bucket list would be oh I want to go skydiving or I want to travel Europe or whatever it is. Yes. Typically it's it's going to involve climb, a travel or climb Mount or an, Everest. An, 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 or yeah, Mont- climb Mount Everest. Some some kind of adventure. But to someone who perhaps is in a third world, their bucket list might be, I want to own my own home one day. Um, you know, I want to be able to provide for my family. Um, I want to be able to not worry about where the next meal is coming from. So, yeah. you know, someone's bucket list could be very humble things. Um, so again, this is something that is, is very different to, to everyone, but you know, I'm looking at it just, you know, you and me, our, our contemporaries, just the, the the basic concept of having that bucket list. Um, I'm thinking about it more and more, and I'm thinking that maybe I should write something down. Mm-hmm. Um, at least it's a reminder of, of if there's things you want to do in your lifetime. Hey, we never explained to, to, why why the term, what the term even means. Like we said, well, yeah, people put a list together. What's Why do they call it a yeah. bucket list? I don't know. I don't know where the term. Well, I guess things you put in your bucket that you want to get done before before you die. Is it? I thought but, it was the expression. Once you kick the bucket, you die. Right? It's kicking well, the that bucket. That could be it as well. That, that could be it. Yeah. I didn't I, even I think, think there was, to look up the reason why we call it the list. Well, I know that there is a, a probably at least ten or fifteen years ago. There's a movie. Jack Nicholson and uh, Morgan Freeman did a movie called The Bucket List. And I, I have. I've it's never. Good watched it i've seen it but I, i've heard it's good and i probably should watch it prior to writing my my bucket list down i looked it up it by the way my... from it is from kick the bucket or to die oh, okay hence a list of things to do before you die the term was coined by american and british screenwriter justin zackman in his screenplay wait okay wait a sec well well 
And How old is this list. term? The buck. Why does he say the term was coined by American uh, for his book, 2007 film, The Bucket List? The first item on his list was to have a screenplay produced at a major Hollywood studio. Um, now I'm curious, like when was the first time this term ever came up? And it's this wiki list is saying, or wiktionary thing is saying that it's this director that created this list. No way. I think that term has been around a lot longer. However, I think the whole concept of a bucket list is probably newer in nature, maybe within the last 50 years or something like that. But it's one of those things that you hear about it being talked about more and more, and it, it's such a everyday part of our conversation about, oh, I crossed something off my bucket list, that type of thing. And, and I've, I'm guilty of using that terminology as well. Um, so I guess to sort of put a, an interesting um, spin on this, let's talk about our bucket lists. As mentioned, I don't have anything written down on paper, but I think I will do that. I, uh, that's going to be a, a project of mine, but terms of my bucket lists um i don't know i'd have to really think long and hard about i guess specific items but what i can tell you is that i definitely travel it would feature prominently on my bucket list of, of places i want to go to and, yeah. and see parts of the world i, I want to see before i die um <laughs> one of the things i want to do is to visit every single major league baseball park yes um, that's on my majors, list too and also some minor league parks as well. I, I love visiting baseball parks. Yeah. Um, but did you have any historical you know, places or or lo- locations absolutely. in the world that you want to see? Yeah, yeah. And is is you know from our past podcasts, I'm a quite the history buff, mm-hmm. and uh, I love visiting historical places. Um, you know, I've often wondered in terms of you know potential bucket list would be to. Um, you know, maybe write a, a biography of someone, uh, maybe a historical event or something like that, to, to be able to do research of a historical place or event and to be able to write about it. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot of different things, but I think travel and sports and history, that, that would feature prominently on mine. How, how about yours? Yes, travel-related things. Um, so one of the questions I wanted to ask was, have you scratched anything off your bucket list in, in recent time? And th- I know I did, and that was in 2000 and s- 2015, I think it was. I One of my bucket list items is I always wanted to go to La Scala, which is a famous opera house in Milan. And I love opera, and I used to be a really big opera fan at one time. I'm still a fan, but much bigger a long time ago. And seeing La Scala was something that was always on my bucket list. And when I got a chance to go to Italy and go to Milan, I got to visit La Scala, and that was a big, big deal for me. It's, I think it was built in 1778, and it, it's anybody who is anybody in the opera world has performed there, you know, Pavarotti, Domingo, uh, many other big singers, um, Maria Callas, all the big greats have performed there. So that was something. Another thing that was on my list was the Great Wall of China. And I fortunately mm-hmm. was able to scratch that off when I went to China in 2016. I actually was able to see four different sections of the Great Wall of China, which I'd never imagined I would get that opportunity to do. 
One other one, it was Japanese related, was I always wanted to eat omakase sushi, which is when you go into the sushi restaurant and the chef chooses what he's going to make. So, omakase stands for I'll leave it up to you, which is what basically you're saying to the chef. And it's usually extremely expensive and it's it gives the chef the opportunity to make the sushi. If you've ever seen the the documentary Hero Dreams of Sushi, um, I actually think it's Jiro <laughs> Dreams of Sushi. Great Netflix documentary. He is an omakase uh, chef, and it, it's a, an amazing the beauty and the colors of the sushi. And so those are some things that were on my list. Jumping out of a parachute or jumping out of an airplane? No. Climbing a mountain? No. Not really. Those don't really fall into it for me. But yeah, I think mostly destination-based bucket lists. Uh, There's a lot of things I haven't seen. I haven't seen a lot of parts of Europe. I've seen some parts of London. I've been to Germany. I've seen... Uh, I've been to a couple other European countries like Italy and, and Switzerland, but there's a lot of things I've never seen. I've never seen Mona Lisa. I've never seen, um, I've never gone to the Grand Canyon. I haven't, I know it sounds like I'm complaining here. I'm not, I trust you, trust me, I'm not. But there are many, many things out there that I definitely want to yeah. scratch off my bucket list. You have to think about this stuff that you put on there and you need to have some easy wins. I, I think if, if you write on your list, <laughs> it, well, what I mean is that it's important to remind yourself of some of the stuff that you have done on your bucket list. Mm. Cause I think if you have a bucket list and you've done absolutely nothing on it, then that can be a little intimidating and a little depressing as well. Right. Thinking, geez, what have I done with my life? Yeah. But you got to think about the things that you have done that in your mind, yeah, that's a bucket list thing. That I'm glad I did. Being more appreciative Um, uh, of what you have. Yeah. So write down some wins. Write down some stuff that you have crossed off your list so that you can look at it and say, okay, I've done some stuff here, um, but let's do more because you don't want to get discouraged. Um, You know, a bucket list should be a a fun thing to do. Um, It should create excitement trying to develop um, a timeline or, 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 you know, plans that in which you can achieve some of these. Um, you know, saving up money to take that big trip you always wanted, that type of thing. So, yeah, it's important to to have some easy wins. And, you know, your bucket list item about, you know, trying that, that type of sushi, um, that, that's an interesting one because it's not necessarily a, a monumental one. You're, you're trying a different kind of a food, but it's still, it's still, a, a, it's a win. And, and it's important to to write that down, to remind yourself to say that, yeah, I did one of these things well, and I'm glad I'll add, I, I, I don't mean to defend it so much, but I think there's an important delineation there. And that is, I also got to experience that in, in Tokyo, in Japan. That's true. So yeah. that adds that extra element to it. I, yeah. Uh, but for anyone who's never done it and, and you get an opportunity to do it in Japan, let me know and I'll, I have a couple places I can recommend. Well, let's move on to our final segment, which uh, is what are we watching now? What are you watching now, Paul? Well, I'd like to recommend a series that I recently just finished watching, which I would highly recommend, a show called The Flight Attendant. And Kaylee Cuoco, who many people would know from uh, The Big Bang Theory, um, she stars in this TV show. Um, It's not to 
give away any spoilers, but it's about a, a flight attendant who um, is in a exotic destination that is basically a suspect for a murder. And the series is her trying to solve this murder and exonerate herself uh, to a certain degree. But yeah, this is a really, um, really fun show to watch. Um, it's uh, HBO Max. Um, I was able to watch it through Crave. Mm. Um, and it's, I believe it's eight episodes, I believe about an hour. It's like a mini series then? Each. Like- yeah, it's a mini series, yeah. So first season just came out, eight episodes. I know it's being renewed for a second season. Oh, so for, it's, for it's a series. It is something that will... Yeah, it is, it is a series, yeah. So Don't call it a mini series be- then. All right, then it is it is a true series, so yes, it is being renewed. But yeah, this was a really uh, cool show to watch in terms of how it was done. Um, again, I don't want to give away too much stuff here because it's it's kind of a it's a different surprise and it's a different concept as you as you watch the show because there's a lot of flashbacks and a lot of interconnecting stories and a lot of symbolism. Um, but it's one of those shows that it. it it has you on the edge of your seat throughout the entire um, throughout the entire eight episodes. Hmm. Uh, again, it's a lot of fun to watch. Um, it would definitely keeps your interest. It's sort of an action suspense thriller. Highly recommend it. How about yourself? Yeah. All right. Well, I've got two things I wanted to talk about. One is the Pharmacist Netflix documentary called The Pharmacist. It's not a it's not a pick me upper by any stretch. It's uh, it's a spotlight that's Sean on the opioid crisis in the United States and the the whole pharmacist piece is that it's about a pharmacist in a small town in New Orleans or near New Orleans who has lost his son to a crack deal gone wrong. And through the investigation of which the police did little to nothing to research who or try to bring his killer to justice, through the research this guy did to help get the person who killed his son convicted, he uncovered this opioid crisis that was going on. And it was the crack epidemic, obviously, was a big thing. And and then that was followed, and still an issue, but the opioid crisis became a big thing kind of in the late 90s started. He was a pharmacist and was at the front had a front row seat to this whole opioid thing. So it's four parts and it's not an easy lit watch, especially if you're, if you have kids and, and you know, who's losing his son to a murder and it's very emotional, but I was just blown away by the opioid crisis. I had no idea how serious it was. It's so serious that in a 10 year period, 450,000 people have died of opioid drug overdoses. Wow, that's incredible. <clears throat> so there's there's lots of stuff in there. Yeah, I hear so much about COVID deaths, but man, the <laughs> opioid crisis just is dangerous. <laughs> yeah, and the other one I'll just quickly say was uh, I've been wa- I started watching The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary. I'm on the 8th episode. I think there's 10 in total. And I'm I'm not a basketball fan really. I appreciate the sport and the athleticism involved, but I really have enjoyed this documentary. It's been interesting watching Michael Jordan and the whole decade of, you know, the the dominance that the team had and and him and all the pressures that came with being who he was and a little bit of a peek into his personality and, and, you know, how he, how he was, uh, 
he was seen as this good guy that couldn't do anything wrong yet just how the media how tough it would be to to be someone like that with the media constantly looking for faults and things to dig up and find out about you and pin you for things even when his father was murdered it it was he was being it was alleged that maybe it had to do with his gambling problems and which nobody ever nobody ever said he had like he never did he even have a, a gambling problem that's something else maybe perhaps made up by the the media as well so the last dance netflix i enjoyed watching it i'm got two more episodes to go so that's my second what i'm watching good um Next time we're back, we'll, we'll probably have Mike along with us. He was supposed to join us today, but uh, went missing and uh, don't have any texts from him. So I guess he'll join us hopefully the next time. So have a good week, sir. Yeah, you too. Always a pleasure. This episode is brought to you by Pace Painting. Pace Painting, serving all your painting needs, whether commercial or residential. Reach Pace Painting at paintwithpace at gmail.com or via their Facebook page, Pace Painting Inc. Or call Peter at 289-356-7744. Paint with Pace.